Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. I hope you have your Bibles this morning. I'd love for you to find Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter number 15, probably one of the uh, most important uh, sections of Scripture doctrinally uh, concerning the first century church. Uh, We know that there are no churches that are, are perfect. This is not a perfect church. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be struggles. There will even be disputes. Uh, at times. Some of those disputes are foolish uh, while others are doctrinally challenged, challenging. Probably one of the most difficult doctrinal challenges that exists in the 21st century church today is the uh, discouragement that comes through uh, Calvinism. Uh, this reformed theology that's going on today and that individuals are jumping on very quickly uh, could be detrimental to the evangelistic efforts of a church. And I'm grateful that this church believes in the Word of God and we do not label ourselves as reformed or Arminians or uh, Calvinist, but we identify ourselves with the one we love and that is Christ. We're Christians. And we need to continue to walk in that vein uh, because there will continue to be uh, disagreements and there will continue to be uh, doctrinal challenges that come down through the text. And it's our goal and it's our responsibility as born-again children of God to say this is what we're going to go by. Amen? This is what we're going to follow, the Word of the living God. And so let's look at this text today. This is what's known as the Jerusalem Council. And in regards to the Jerusalem Council, it's very important to understand that Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. And some Jews uh, end up showing up and uh, they say to the Gentiles, in order for you to be saved, you must be circumcised. You must do this and you must follow the law of Moses. And obviously when this comes out and this debate begins to rage, there is a huge, huge argument over what's going to happen in this thing. And ultimately what they're going to do is send uh, Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to inquire of the apostles. And they're all going to come together. They're going to discuss the matter. They're going to look at an Old Testament passage of Scripture. And then they're going to come to a conclusion. And that conclusion directly influences and relates to us today as born-again children of God. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 1 of chapter 15. And it goes all the way through verse number 35. So it's very lengthy. My introduction is a little bit long today. I don't know how much I'm going to get through on the actual outline. I just ask that you bear with me and uh, uh, we'll try to get through as much as we can today. Verse number 1 says, And certain men came down from Judah... And taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the counsel 
of Moses or the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The word cannot is an emphatic Greek verb stating that no way, it's absolutely impossible, you cannot be saved unless you participate in this religious ritual. Verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them... So they didn't just pass this thing off and sweep it under the rug. They stood their ground and said, No, this is an essential doctrine, and we're going to stake down right here, and we're going to dig down, and we will die on this hill. And let me just say this. When it comes to salvation, you better be willing to die on this hill because this is the difference between being saved by grace through faith or being saved by the works of the law. All right, let's go on. He says next in the text, he says, They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenician Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Now let me stop and say something parenthetically there. Again, I encourage you, if you have your pens and mark in your Bible, I would underline the term describing. The word describing. In the Greek, that term is a very interesting word. It carries the idea of them sharing the gospel and more people coming to know Christ as Savior, but not from their voices, not from their lips, but from the lips of others. The church is being intentionally evangelistic even though there's no apostle there instructing them to do so. You see, when Jesus Christ changes a life, you can't keep quiet about it. You have got to say something about Jesus. Verse number 4. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. Now, let me say this parenthetically, verse 5. Who believed, that is an important term, because it is linking the Pharisees that, are believe, that have believed on Jesus Christ. So these are saved Pharisees. We could look at these today <laughs> as independent Baptists. Okay, they're saved Pharisees. I'm just kidding. It's a joke, okay? I'm just playing. Just no bad emails out there in uh, social media land. It's a joke, okay? I tell you, I'm a recovering independent Baptist. Could I get a witness right there? Here's what he goes on to say in verse 5. He said, these Pharisees who were saved rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, here's a strong word, command them. To keep the law of Moses. So, not, it, you, it's not salvation by grace through faith. No, no. You say a prayer and then you fall in line. You get circumcised and then you start obeying the law. That's what they're saying. Verse 6. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. The word consider there means to counsel one another and to search the scriptures and to diligently look and see what does the Bible say. Verse number 6, or what does the prophet say in relationship to salvation? Verse 6, now the apostles and the elders came together uh, to consider this in verse 7. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brothers in Christ, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
So God who knows the heart, acknowledging them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between them, between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Verse 11, let me say something parenthetically there. I love the fact that he says we as Jews are saved the same, saved the same way those Gentiles are saved. He didn't use the Jews first. He didn't say we're saved the same way they're saved. He said no, that, that we, or they're saved the same way we're saved. He didn't say that. He said we are saved the same way they are saved by faith. Verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describing how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Uh, let, me, let me stop there and say this parenthetically. Verse 12, that is a very important passage because what Paul and, and Barnabas are talking about is when they went over uh, to Antioch there, to Pisidian Antioch, and when those individuals come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, it was as if the Holy Spirit sat down on them like Pentecost on that day, and they, not having the completed Word of God, began to testify and prophesy about the goodness of God and salvation only through Jesus Christ. Look at what happens in verse 13. The Bible says, And after they had become silent, James stands up. And James answers and says, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at, the first, at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. And then he reads Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. Verse 18. He says, Known to God from eternity are all of his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them, to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. The word blood there, he's referring to drinking the blood of, of, a, of an animal that was offered to an idol. Verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preached him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Verse 21 is linking the fact that if if Gentiles are going to hear about the prophets which prophesied about Jesus Christ coming and as Amos talks about rebuilding, uh, the, rebuilding the tabernacle of David if they're going to hear that they've got to be in the synagogue to hear that knowing that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven which means there's going to be this real close association with Jews and Gentiles. They're going to have to come together. And so he's, he's referring to that in verse 21. Verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, and also uh, Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. And then here's the letter that they wrote. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and uh, Sicilia. Greetings. 
Since we have heard that some, uh, some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command. It seems good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Number one, that you abstain from the things offered to idols. Number two, from blood. Number three, from things strangled. And number four, from sexual immorality. If you, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. I would take my pen and I would underline that conditional phrase, if it's essential in understanding this verse. Many people look at this verse and say, how can you say salvation is by grace alone through faith when right here the first letter that comes out of the Jerusalem council states that not only must they receive Christ by faith, but here are four things that they have to do. We'll deal with that in just a few moments. He tells us at the end of that letter, farewell. Then in verse number 30, the Bible says, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch and went, and, and they went and they gathered the multitude together and delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brothers uh, and the sisters, brethren, with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good that Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. May, may the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word today. So... This is a huge event in the history of the church. There are insights that we can learn from this passage of Scripture that I want to deal with. I don't know if I'll get there three specific insights that, that we find in this text. I want to deal with those. I may not get to all three of them, but I definitely want to share with you as many as I possibly can. Number one, the first insight that I want you to see is the insight... It, that, which has to do with salvation concerning, number one, the gospel and salvation. The gospel and salvation. When you walk away from the Jerusalem council, the first insight you walk away with concerns the gospel and salvation. The primary text is found in verses 7 through 11. In verse number 7 is where Peter stands up all the way to verse number 11, and Peter proclaims, that is, God is his witness. Salvation came to the Gentiles exactly how salvation came to the Jews. And salvation came to the Jews exactly how it came to the Gentiles. And so after the disciples and the apostles have actually been at it for a while within this Jerusalem council, and Peter begins to stand up and give his short speech, he really brings clarify, clarification to the entire issue for everyone. And basically what he does is he says, let me tell you how the gospel saves. That's what he says. When you look at verses 7 through 11, you see that 
Peter pretty much just basically says, let me tell you how the gospel saves. And so how does the gospel save? This is important for each one of us because each one of us that are born again experience these very things. There are three things worth noting on how the gospel saved you today, dear friend. Number one, we see the involvement of the heart. The involvement of the heart. Look at what Peter says. Again, picking up in verse number 7 in the latter part. He says, men and brothers and sisters, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8. So God, who knows the heart. That is not in there by accident. That's in there intentionally. It's in there intentionally because Peter is pointing to the fact that it was the heart of the issue in relationship to salvation. When it comes to being saved, there is conviction that happens in the heart. And when that conviction happens in the heart, you have a decision to make. Will you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or will you push Him away? Or will you neglect Him? The Bible tells us that these Jews that heard the gospel heard it first in their heart. Paul picks up on this in Romans and all throughout many gospel presentations. He deals with the issue of the heart. If you have your Bibles, let's find uh, the book of Romans. Turn, if you would, to Romans uh, chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10. Uh, And let's look at Romans 10.10 so that we can clearly understand what is being said here in relationship to salvation and the heart. Again, the Bible says there in verse number 10, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, the mouth is just used for talking about what happened inside your heart. It really is the heart of the matter. When it comes to salvation, it has everything to do with your heart. The confession of the mouth can only follow the believing of the heart. It is the believing of the heart that makes us righteous in God's eyes. Because of Christ's righteousness, which is applied to our record, and we realize that first and foremost in the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that occurs in our heart. If we believe on Christ in our heart, but fail to confess him with our mouth, here's the question. Are we really saved? Well, let me ask you this. Think about this for a minute. What do you do if you say the answer that is no, you can't really be saved if you don't confess Jesus with your mouth? Then here's my question for you. Then what do you do with a person who is a mute and cannot speak audibly? Does that mean they can never be saved? Of course not. Well, then how are they saved? It is a matter of the heart. The heart is what is involved in saving faith. We find that the very fact that a mute person cannot confess Christ audibly is proof that God doesn't require it as a part of saving faith. Salvation is of the heart. We are saved by believing on Jesus Christ and it involves the heart. Number two, there's a second thing that Peter says. Not only do you see the involvement of the heart, but you also see the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse number 8 as he goes on, and 9. He says in verse 8 and 9, So God, who knows the heart, 
acknowledged, you see that in verse number 8, there's this acknowledgement that means to bear witness to, that the, the, here is God bearing witness to them that they are saved by, through the heart and giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by Faith. So here again, we see the term heart, but more importantly, in verse number 8, we see the giving of the Holy Spirit. If you have your pens, I would underline that word giving. Why? Because that word giving there means to give a gift. What we're finding in this text is Peter is proclaiming Jesus Christ to the Gentiles as he knows they've received Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. Peter is simply saying, look guys, in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those Gentiles had the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. They believed by faith in their heart, God bearing witness to that, deposited within them the Holy Spirit. He gifted them the Holy Spirit of God. The gift of the Holy Spirit belongs only to those who are truly redeemed. Let me show you. If you have your Bibles, let's go back to Romans. Romans chapter number 8. Find that with me, if you will. Um, there's Acts. Here's Romans right behind it. As we look at, at Romans, I want to call your attention, attention to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a, is a doctrinal position from Paul about how the gospel has freed us from the indwelling sin. How does that happen? Look at verse number 9. But you are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. What is Paul saying? Paul is simply saying to the church at Rome, he's saying, listen guys, in relationship to you being born again, in relationship to you trusting Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, that convicting power that happened in your heart and you believed by faith upon Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on Calvary's cross, the Holy Spirit has been now deposited inside of you and he dwells in you. The Spirit of God, you look at verse 9, dwells in you. He lives inside of you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling and living inside of you, you are not saved. Say, so, well, I walk the aisle. That doesn't matter. I put my name on the church row. Doesn't matter. I got baptized. Doesn't matter. I partook of the Lord's Supper. Does not matter. You cannot be saved on any of those things. You must be saved and it has to deal with your heart, and you have to come to Christ by faith, and there has to be a deposit of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. Let me show you another passage. Uh, let's find 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. Again, Paul is dealing with this issue of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. Let me call your attention again to verse number 19. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse number 19, Paul has this to say about this issue of the Holy Spirit. 
He's just challenged them to flee sexual immorality. Again, that's the same thing we're going to be looking uh, concerning the Jerusalem Council here in just a moment. But we find here in the text, according to 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 6, 19, the Bible says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Paul simply says the Holy Spirit again is dwelling inside of you. We could go on. I don't have time, but we can mark this down and look at it later. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink of the same Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us. Paul, again, to Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, said this, that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. How do you receive it? It comes through faith. By faith, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, that what he did on Calvary's cross was for you. And when you come to Christ by faith, he deposits the Holy Spirit inside of you that dwells inside of you, and now you are his. That's why, that is why after you get saved, and if you were a cusser before, it's hard for you to be a cusser anymore. <laughs> why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. So we see the involvement of the heart. Then we see the involvement of the Holy Spirit. And then let me give you this last one very quickly. The involvement of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Jerusalem Council walks away. And they simply say that in relationship to salvation, the gospel is so vitally important. And the gospel involves the heart, the Holy Spirit, in the grace of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 11. Peter finishes up what he's saying, and he says this. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Here, this passage of Scripture speaks of the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, an important thing to note here is the construction of the preposition through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The contrast here is between law-keeping uh, Christians, which is represented by circumcision, and grace. There has always been a war between the two. There has always been a war between keeping the law and God's sweet grace. And what we're finding in the Jerusalem Council here, the very first issue that comes up is in relation to salvation. And the bottom line is simply this. You are not saved by what you do religiously. You are saved by grace. And that grace is applied to you through the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And so we find here that we cannot miss this because in any attempt to earn God's favor is against what true salvation is all about. You see, circumcision was the sign of the covenant with Abraham. It was a marker that you were in the family of God. And there were all kinds of other laws that you had to obey as well. So many, uh, so many of those laws that it was impossible to keep them. You were always failing and always in need of sacrifice, uh, of being, you always need the sacrifice in order to be forgiven. 
So he's saying that the law was something no one could ever obey perfectly. Nobody could do that. It was a heavy yoke, Peter said. In fact, it was so heavy that it burdened you down. And you could not, you couldn't do anything with the burden of the law that was around your neck. And so Paul, Peter is actually saying to those Christian, uh, those Jewish Christians on that day, he says, you're carrying around a yoke that you don't need to carry around. And then we think about this. Jesus, when he came into the world, he's the one that said this. Come to me, all ye that labor are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, and I will give you rest for your souls. Oh, dear brothers and sisters. Jesus said there is a yoke that you've got to have around your neck, but it's not the yoke of the law. It's the yoke of grace. And when you put the yoke of grace on you, you don't even feel like you've got a heavy yoke upon you at all. It's easy. It is light. And it carries us into the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Galatians, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So we find here in the text that in regards to salvation, the gospel in salvation, it involves the heart. It involves the Holy Spirit. And it involves the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to give you this point number two, and I want to say two things about it very quickly, and then I'm going to close. The second thing that comes out of the Council of Jerusalem that is insightful to you and I is dealing with the gospel and our freedom. The gospel and our freedom. We see that in verses 28 and 29. Did you see it again? Let me remind you of what it says. This is the letter that they have, wrote, have written to those Jews in these areas. And you see the areas there uh, in the text where he says it's to the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. So they're writing this letter to them. And in the letter in verse 28 and 29, he says for this, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Number one, that you abstain from the things offered to idols, from blood, and from the things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, uh, these you will do well. So here, the second thing that comes out of the Jerusalem Council, the insight that we have, has to deal with the gospel and our freedom in Christ. You see, when Jesus Christ set you free, he set you free. We are not under the law anymore. We struggle like Paul said. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, the things that I want to do, those are the things that I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. Who can save me from this wretchedness that I am? And it is Jesus who saves us from that wretchedness. And that salvation comes in knowing what we can and can't do by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit concerning God's moral law. You see, we are no longer under the Mosaic law. We have been set free from that. But we'll never be out from under the moral law of God. 
Why? Because the moral law of God is what governs us in our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ consists of two elements. Number one, we see the freedom of salvation by faith. The freedom of salvation by faith. Look at verse 28 again. He says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now, he put, and to us, that statement is in agreement with what the Holy Spirit, because whether or not we agree with the Holy Spirit or not, that doesn't matter. You know, it's about like that bumper sticker we'd see that says, God is my uh, uh, co-pilot. No, he's, he's your pilot. And then there's that other bumper sticker that, that, that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God said it, period. And so th- this is that same scenario here. God said it, period. We're just agreeing with what the, what, what the Holy Spirit says. And he goes, he says this in the latter part of verse 28. To lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So what he's saying is this. He says, we're going to point to two laws. The Mosaic law and the moral law. You are no longer under the Mosaic law. But we're going to give you three things, he says, that are, that are important to you that if you follow them, again, this is where the condition of verse 29 comes in. You see it? If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. He doesn't say, if you don't do this, you're going to go back and be lost again and you're not going to be saved. No, he says, if you do this, you're going to do well. Why? Because these three things under the Mosaic Law that we're asking you to think about has to deal with the culture of the Jews. And the things that I want to talk to you about this fornication has to do with the moral law that's in your heart. Remember the culture that this is being written in. All across the cities, Corinth, Galatia, uh, Philippi, all of these cities had all of these different uh, worship experiences. Almost all of them, you could get a temple prostitute. Almost all of them. And what he's saying here is this. You need to stay pure and clean to your spouse. This is a moral law that's written in our hearts. We don't have to have it spelled out in Mosaic law. It doesn't need to be uh, in the Ten Commandments. We are free from all of that. But we know that moral law is true in our heart. That if we do this, we go against what God has defined as proper in Scripture. And if you don't believe that, Paul deals with it specifically in Romans chapter 1. So he says, you are saved by faith and you've got freedom. But you better know what you can and can't do by listening to the Holy Spirit of God in relationship to that freedom. Because what you participate in may be wise or it may be unwise. That's why the scripture says in Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1 that alcohol is unwise. You say, I mean, I wish the scripture would just say, don't drink. I wish it just said, don't drink. It would make it so much easier. Well, if the Bible says don't drink, then the Bible would also say don't eat because there's this, uh, 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 there's this uh, consistency in Scripture in regards to your spiritual freedom. You're free in Christ. You see, drinking won't send you to hell, but it'll make you so unwise, it'll ruin your testimony. It could hurt your witness. And so there's this moral law that resides in our hearts. And he says, this freedom that we have of salvation, we've got to clearly understand it's by faith. But then let me show you a second thing because I'm out of time. I need to be closing it up right now. We see it, then it also carries the idea of the freedom to obey God. Verse 29. 
the freedom to obey God. We've got the freedom to live however we want to by faith, but we also have the freedom to obey God or disobey God. Look at verse 29 again. I call your attention to the conditional clause there, if. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. You will be wise. It is a New Testament proverb. Here we find in the text. So there's a key word here that I don't want you to miss. We've already dealt with it. I've really hammered it home. The key word is if. If. Number two, there's a key reason. What is the key reason for this text? Unity. You see, when you take the Mosaic law and you take the, or the law, if you would, that is, that they're under the Mosaic law, and you take the moral law that we have today, and you say, okay, these first three have to deal with the Mosaic law. The cult, they've got a lot of ringing coming on up here, brothers. Uh, this moral law that we're dealing with here in this text has to deal with unity. Here's what, here's what the Jerusalem Council is saying. If you Christian Gentiles are going to fellowship around the table with these Jews, you've got to understand you're not going to be served things that have been offered to idols or things that offered to be from blood or things that are strangled. You're not going to be offered any of those things. In your hometown, you may have been raised where you go to the market and there's been some meat that's been sacrificed to idols and, um, and it's okay for you to buy that. Remember, Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians, if you'll remember. Paul says it doesn't matter. You can eat that meat. You can eat that meat. So why does the Jerusalem Council say it will, it, you'll do well if you don't eat that meat? He's talking about unity. You, he's saying you're not going to be able to have unity with these Jewish believers. If you come in there to a potluck dinner and you said, Hey, uh, I brought the meat that was sacrificed to Moloch yesterday. And you sit on They ain't going to like that. They're not going to like it. So he says, you got to keep yourself from that if you want to maintain unity among the brothers. Now, what you do in your homes, that's between you and God. Paul dealt with that in 1 Corinthians. But he says, you have, you have the freedom in your heart to obey the cultural laws that the Jews, the Christian Jews are observing so that you can come in and you can participate in Passover with them because that's important to them. So the first three requirements help the Gentiles create unity with the Jews, especially uh, those uh, Jewish believers and any unbelieving Jews that may want to become believers in the future. This obeying removes the stumbling block and they center around food and one of the greatest community events that happens around the dinner table. Jews still observe these dietary Thing, uh, dietary laws even today. So the Gentiles and the Jews are going to eat together and for the sake of unity they're asking them to obey these requirements even though this does not merit to their salvation. It is not added to say to their being saved. It's not you got to trust Jesus Christ by faith and do these four things. That's not what he's saying. Then the last one, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, again, is from the moral law. And the moral law of God is something we all should always obey as Christians. So it's not obeying to be justified. It's obeying out of love for God and for one another. 
And this is exactly what we find here in the text. And then there's one last thing, and I don't have time to deal with it. It has to do with the gospel and leadership. It's found in verses 30 and 31. Just very quickly, if you're taking notes and you want the whole thing, because I probably won't come back to this, I'll pick it up in verse number 36. But in regards to this issue of the gospel and leadership, he just simply says, and you can see it there in the text, that once we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and we're saved by faith, and because we're saved by faith, the, 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 the uh, apostles go and they take this letter and they do a couple of things. They go and tell. They go and tell. This Jerusalem council gives us insight into leadership because it gives us the liberty to go and tell others the truth about what the Word of God really means. Number two. The second thing, it gives us a beautiful uh, witness, if you will, and strength to uh, gather together, to gather together. Why are we gathered here together today? Well, because Jesus said on the first day of the week, we should gather together and we should worship him and, th and praise him. And that's what we're doing today. And that came out of the, J the Jerusalem Council uh, in them coming together and celebrating what God had said and praising God. And then number three, uh, we see it also gives us the strength to greatly rejoice. We see that in verse number 31. They greatly rejoiced because they clearly knew that they were not being put under the burden of the law that the burden of the law has been lifted and that they were not saying, in order for you to get saved, you've got to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and obey these four things. No, he says, it's gonna, you're going to do well if you follow these things. You can, you can't, but you're going to do well if you do because you're going to be healthy in the moral law of God that he's given in your heart and you're going to be able to have unity with other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in this first century church. Now, as that relates to you and I today, there are some individuals, there's some folks that we have fellowship with. We have fellowship with, and we praise God for that fellowship because the disagreements that we have are not, uh, they may be doctrinal like in, in, the, in the sense of ecclesiology or, excuse me, eschatology in end times, but we're able to have fellowship because we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And then there are other individuals that we do not have fellowship with because they do not hold to Jesus Christ alone. And so we find here in the Jerusalem Council, as we leave this section of Scripture, we find strength for the family of God to know that in Jesus Christ, there's full salvation. By faith alone, by the grace of the Holy Spirit of God that has come to us through Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. So let me ask you a question this morning in closing. Have you ever trusted Christ as Savior? Have you ever done that? Have you ever experienced these things in relationship to salvation in the gospel? Did it involve your heart or did it just involve your head? If it involved your head, you need to get saved today. Uh, maybe you just wrote your name down on a roll. That's not true salvation. True salvation has to do with the conviction of the heart. Receiving the Holy Spirit through faith. And in regards to this issue of entrusting him, knowing that it came through Jesus Christ. Have you ever had that experience? I want to give you that opportunity today with our heads bowed and our eyes closed as we go to the Lord in prayer and we're dismissed in just a moment. Maybe you're here and you've never had that experience. You've never trusted Christ. Then right where you're sitting today, from your heart to God, would you say something like this? Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And this morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Today, I trust you as my Savior.
I repent of my sins. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.